Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 561 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories. Publishers Weekly says, Visceral settings and robust characters will have readers marveling at how much Kirtley is able to fit into a limited page count. For SFF fans with no time to sink into a doorstopper, these concentrated doses of genre goodness will hit the spot. And Kirkus Reviews writes, Kirtley employs sharp, concise prose that complements his puckish sense of humor. The author's passionate voice breathes life into this wonderful array of tales. So again, the book is called Save Me, Please, and Other Stories. And it's available now on Amazon.com. And our guests today are the husband and wife team of Amanda Knox and Christopher Robinson. Amanda is the author of the best-selling memoir, Waiting to be Heard, about being falsely accused of murder as a college student living in Italy. She's also a columnist for Westside Seattle and host of the Truth About True Crime podcast. Christopher Robinson is a fellow of the McDowell Colony Antiato, and his writing has appeared in the Kenyan Review and McSweeney's. He's also the co-author, along with Gavin Kovite, of the novels The War of the Encyclopedists and Deliver Us. And in this interview, we'll be discussing Amanda and Christopher's podcast, Labyrinths, which features interviews with guests such as LeVar Burton, Brent Spiner, Michael Shermer, and John Ronson, and discussing Christopher's novel, Deliver Us, a hilarious take on the future of Amazon's drone delivery program. And now here's our interview with Amanda Knox and Christopher Robinson. All right, so we're here with Amanda Knox and Christopher Robinson. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's start off with Amanda and have you tell us how big of a fantasy and science fiction fan are you? Oh, huge. Uh, Love fantasy, love science fiction. Chris has gotten me more into science fiction. I was more of a fantasy nerd um, growing up, reading a lot of not just the standard Harry Potter, but a lot of other things as well. Elaborate. Uh, elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. I mean, how's the Red Wall series for you? <laughs> Deep yeah. cut mice fighting battles. <laughs> no, I, I, um, I, I love those books. Yeah, I actually wrote a short story called Red Road, which is kind of like a, a a takeoff on uh, an homage. On the Red Wall series. Very yeah. nice. Yeah, I did this really great um, diorama for a book report project that I did in middle school for one of the Red Wall books. And I bit, I did this like big red wall of <laughs> like it was but four walls. Like I did the whole it was three dimensional object. And then inside the walls, I wrote about what was going on in the book. And it was great. I got an A plus plus on that assignment. Yeah. And you were like a Lord <laughs> of the Rings fan, too. Lord of the you? Rings fan. Um Although it was harder for me to read. I, I read mm. a lot of Ursula K. Le Guin mm. when I was growing up. Um, my stepdad was also a big influence for me with, in that regard. And also, um, he had this book that I wasn't allowed to read that was um, a, based upon Lord of the Rings, but it was like some fan version of it that was sexually explicit. <laughs> Do you know what that one is? It's like... I've never heard of that. Oh, my God. I'm going to look it up I right mean, now. I mean, there's this Sorry. National Lampoon's Board of the Rings. 
Yes. Yes. It was Board of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. So I found that in his library and I was like, what's this? This looks fun. And then he caught me reading it and I didn't Mm. get in trouble per se, because if I told my mom, he might get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So that's my history with that. Um, But my favorite books I've read, let's see, Chris introduced me to one of my favorite sci-fi books, which is Deepness in the Sky. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, another book that I read in prison that I loved, loved, loved was The Sparrow. And I only was, as we were chatting about this this morning, I only realized now that both of those books, one of the reasons why I really loved them was because they dramatized the problem of language when you're encountering new species and how important it is to be understood or to understand. Um, And... Both of them do that in a really interesting way. I don't know if you want me to go deep, deep into uh, that uh, <laughs> or not. No, no. I mean, I'll mention, though, that I, you know, we reviewed um, A Fire Upon the Deep uh, by Werner mm-hmm. Vinge recently. And mm-hmm. so I haven't cool. gotten to uh, Deepness in the Sky yet, but I've heard it's great. I'm really looking That's forward amazing. to, to That's doing that as well. That's so good. So good. We um, won't spoil it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely don't. Um, well, let's get Kristen here, too. So, Chris, kind of what is your background as a fantasy and science fiction fan? Yeah, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons, and I was immersed in that kind of fantasy world from a very young age. I think from like third grade, I was playing D&D pretty frequently. And I I did a lot of reading for as a kid as well. And I, I think the first time I remember getting chills from a book was reading Lord of the Rings. And I think it was when the eagles arrived. <laughs> The eagles are coming. <laughs> it's like, oh my Where God, have you the, been? The <laughs> That's what I want to know. Where have you been this whole time? <laughs> Just roosting. Finally. <laughs> roosting. Um, and, you know, I read a lot of pulp sci-fi. I read, you know, countless Star Wars universe books, that sort of thing. But I also read, you know, the Foundation trilogy and uh, every Asimov I could get my hands on. A lot of Heinlein, love old classic sci-fi. And as I got into high school, you know, I was reading William Gibson and, um, you know, there wasn't a ton of like great sci-fi that existed in film world. I mean, there were things like Total Recall, you know, Um, but there's been a huge boom of that in cinema, I would say, in the last 20 years. And so, of course, I'm, you know, I've seen basically... uh, Everything in the Star Trek franchise, I'm pretty familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, to the extent that, like, it's kind of annoying sometimes. If you <laughs> get him and another Trekkie in the room, they'll start talking about episodes, like uh, specific. Yeah. Like, season five, episode season 23. Season five, episode yeah. 23. <laughs> <laughs> Which is p- partly why we were really motivated to get LeVar Burton and Brent Spiner onto our podcast, Labyrinths, um, because we're such huge fans of Next Generation. And, uh, you know, we've got two of the cast members now and we're, who should our third be? Yeah, we're going to work our (laughs) way in. Work our way up to Patrick Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's actually how I came across your Labyrinth podcast. This guy's, I interviewed Brent Spiner a couple of years ago. And so uh, as research for that, I listened to your interview with him. And I was like, wow, this is, uh, this is really good. These are obviously, uh, it's funny because there's a part, yeah, speaking of um, where you ask LeVar Burton, you say, uh, to establish our nerd cred, I want to ask ah. you about, <laughs> you know, season whatever episode. I have a, I have a note here somewhere. But uh, 
think it was um, season five, episode 23, the next phase, or maybe that's yeah. episode 25. It was the next phase, though, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm, yeah, when, when Jordy phases out and he has to have Data figure out yeah. their friendship brings mm-hmm. them back. It's a Jordy-Data friendship episode. It's that's really so moving. So how, what was that like, or how did you get set up interviewing um, LeVar Burton and Brent Spiner? Well, this is going to sound, I don't know. I don't know what this is going to sound like. What happens every so often is Chris will see who's following me on Twitter. (laughs) Because I never look, but he's like, I wonder who's following you on Twitter. And we noticed that Brent Spiner was following me on Twitter. And I was just flabbergasted. (laughs) And he was like, you should DM him. You should DM him. And I was like, I could never. And he was like, do it, do it, do it. So I did. And he was so nice and sweet. And then I asked him to, you know, do an interview on Labyrinths. And that just happened to coincide with his new book coming out. And it and it worked out. It was, it was the it was same for fun. LeVar Burton, too. I think he was following Amanda on Twitter and and we pitched him on coming on the show. And he was like, you know, I normally you know, don't have time for this kind of thing, but this sounds intriguing. <laughs> so I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I think he said, I'm going to take a flyer. I'm going to take a flyer. Yeah. <laughs> well, because that episode, it was really interesting because you do this sort of like thing with these multiple timelines and how his life could have been different and your lives could have been different. Was that part of your initial pitch or like how did that, where did that idea no, come from? No, that just kind of arose after the interview. We were thinking um, we wanted to do something fun and sci-fi with it and it because over the course of talking to him, we realized that he's had all these different lives. And I often get asked what if questions when it comes to my own life. I thought it would be a fun way to explore mm. that idea. So Chris had some fun with some audio engineering and yeah, sound effects. That was all in post. And we ran that by him. We Once we had scripted the episode and we pitched him and said, are you cool with us chopping it up in this way? Because it did require some clever audio editing to create these this sort of multiple timelines effect in a podcast interview, which I think maybe we're the only podcast that's ever done that. <laughs> well, we've only done it once, to be fair, because yeah. I'm not sure. It's not really a sustainable model. <laughs> <laughs> well, just a- as a podcaster, I'm listening to that. I'm like, oh, my God, this must have been so much work. I was I was really impressed by the level of uh, it was a lot of work. It was fun, though. Yeah. Fun work. I think Chris was using it as an opportunity to play with tools in Adobe Audition Hmm. just because (laughs) you were fiddling. Yeah. It was also the like season finale of our first run of episodes. And I wanted to do something special. Mm -hmm. Also, I I was wondering with that episode uh, at the end, you say, if any music producers out there want to team up with us to actually make it make a real song called To Boldly Go, we're all (laughs) over that. So... (laughs) Oh, I said, oh, hey. yeah. Any music you know producers? what? <laughs> we'll reiterate that, sure. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> We've been doing some music stuff here at home, so that would be super fun. Do you want to explain about the To Boldly Go song? <laughs> um, I think we should work on it together and then go for it because it could it could evolve since we last. I mean, it's been ages since we even proposed that, but it was going to be some of me singing and you rapping. That's right. <laughs> Chris was a rapper in a past life or in an alternate alternate dimension. Yeah. So it'd be fun. We haven't we have yet to it's come a up party with a trick song. I pull out on occasion these days, but I, I don't have a lot of time for rapping. 
One do, of his favorite s- things to do is to put me on the spot and ask me to freestyle rap. And I have, <laughs> I, I feel like I stop. I, I, the first word that comes to mind whenever he asks me to do that is orange, which you can't rhyme anything with. And I'm just like, God. You can. Eminem proved that many times <laughs> over. It's true. Syringe, door hinge, you know, <laughs> four inch. <laughs> Do you do you still remember how the lyrics go to the set your face or still no. <laughs> no no we don't it's been a while we should have looked that up before coming on well, here but fortunately i have it right here <laughs> oh good uh, okay girl it's the final frontier no fear we could start at impulse warp nine till it's time to set your phasers to love <laughs> god we're so good this is yeah. genius yeah, they're, you know? they're way, just for listeners, they're way better than, than I am. That was just a <laughs> suggestive. Uh, know, go some, ahead, Chris. Some things deserve to be a, a snippet. <laughs> <laughs> That's its ideal form. Yeah, I mean, some movies should just be the trailer for the movie. You know what? Some you trailers know? are super artful, and they sort of give away the whole movie. Yeah, and you're like, "Oh, that's that was a great two and a half minutes." Don't <laughs> don't bother making this. Says Mr. TikTok Brain. Now is it? No, because I'm just we can... <laughs> because sometimes an idea, not every idea, is worth two and a half hours or or five hundred pages of a book. That's true. And I've definitely read some books, sci-fi and not, that the premise didn't deserve that mm. m- much time. You know, mm-hmm. and you, now no. you're just sort of spinning the wheels. No, I'm totally with you. I'm, I I watch trailers over and over, like trailers that I like over and over. And there's definitely a lot of tra- like a lot of movies where I've watched the trailer cumulatively mm-hmm. for more time than watching the actual movie. You know. <laughs> Ooh, do you have a favorite um, sci-fi themed music video? Oh God, what's uh, could I remember that there's a band. Um, I haven't listened to it in a long time. Um, okay, so so one of their uh, they have a music video called Twin Flames. It's like oh, I don't know if, if I can sing it, if that is that copyright violation. Uh, <laughs> but it's like Twin Flames in our hearts as we move toward the very start. If you Google that, it would probably come up. I mm. forget the name okay. of the band. Twin Flames. Say it again. So Twin Flames in our heart or hearts, probably as we Flames move toward our very start. Hearts. As we move, okay, let's see what comes up. The Claxons. Claxons, yeah. Yeah. So Twin Flames, and oh God, they had another music video. I can't remember the name of the song now, but it's like in the music video, they're all kind of like floating in outer space with these vaguely uh, lightsaber type things. And these <laughs> objects sort of float by them and they hmm. like chop them, in, chop them in slow motion and all the pieces fly toward the camera. It's, it's pretty, and they're all like wrapped in like different colored uh like ribbons kind of they're like naked wrapped in different colored ribbons it's it's pretty epic that's that's the first thing that comes to mind for me awesome check that awesome out. i'm trying to think if i can think of one i was just thinking i was thinking that trailers are awesome but also music videos are awesome and i was wondering if there are any sci-fi or fantasy related ones that come to mind i mean the flight of the concords when they do <laughs> the, the lord, lord of, of the, the rings, rings one is pretty funny <laughs> There's a guy I love um, named Tom Cardi, who's an Australian comedy musician. Are you aware of him? Um, he's no, no. He's you know the Australian Flight of the Concords type Wait, guy. Tom Cardi, last Tom- name Cardi. Yeah, really. And uh, you know he has that businessman song. Yeah, it's so funny. Uh, oh my God. But he does a lot of stuff on TikTok as well, which I'm not on TikTok, but I've I think he posts them to YouTube. Um, and he does a he has an amazing. Um, 
song about Baldur's Gate. <laughs> uh, another one about Lord of the Rings where he's describing the plot of Fellowship of the Ring. And, and it's this conversation where uh, Tolkien is like pitching it to the publisher. And, then, and he's like, and then what happens? And they then he's walk. like, they walk. They walk. They walk. They walk. They walk. <laughs> funny um so i'll mention too the other thing i saw that i was like okay i gotta interview these guys is your proposal um like Uh, on on youtube i just came across the wedding proposal thing Um, oh man mm. you didn't even see the wedding dude (laughs) no no i wasn't i guess i wasn't invited but um, sorry (laughs) but the uh i guess i'll just explain you know so this this proposal video basically like amanda is working on it like sewing a dress or something i'm sewing a wizard cloak as it happens okay Okay. and um and there's like a sound of something like like falling out of the sky outside and and this is all you know being filmed on a a camera or something and or on a phone or something and so then they they go outside and there's this like glowing meteor that's like struck in the backyard with kind of like mist coming off of it and there's some um like tablet with a message on it right is that is that more or less accurate yeah yeah it was it was a data crystal from the future (laughs) that had rocketed back in time Uh, and on that data crystal in the crevice of a smoldering meteorite um, it had a fractured partial entry from the encyclopedia galactica about the knox robinson coalescence which was the the future, you know, union and life together of uh, Amanda Knox and Christopher Robinson. So it was a encyclopedia article about us and our life together. And then <laughs> when I, you know, when Amanda came and discovered this, I was like, oh, wait, I was thinking about doing this, but I guess it already happened in the future. So I guess <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it now. You know? <laughs> um, she she didn't know what was happening. <laughs> she thought maybe I was leading I thought, her on a scavenger hunt. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't entirely I wasn't entirely sure that you, what you were doing was what you were doing mm. because we have we're notorious for throwing each other little parties or little scavenger hunts that are very uh, narratively developed um, and that often use props or costumes like. For his first birthday that we were together, I teamed up with his brother and I came up with this whole like secret agent role playing game. It was kind of that was in the future also. It was a cyberpunk themed LARP. Yeah. (laughs) And so like I woke up on my birthday and she was gone. She said, gave some some excuse about. Yeah, I woke up early and said I had to pick up a friend from the airport. (laughs) And I I walk into my bathroom to take a shower and there is this folded up pile of futuristic looking clothes and uh, some cyber shades. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. (laughs) And then when I shower, the, the mirror fogs up and I can see that someone has written on the mirror just with their finger. Thanks for the, you know, great night. XO Coco. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, and then I get a phone call from an altered voice that sounds like a you know artificial and it, it identifies itself as the artificial intelligence <laughs> <laughs> and it t- tells me that i have a mission um agent carbon and that i need to go down to this local coffee shop and meet um the johnson who will deliver me the, the mission briefing <laughs> and, I, and, sh- and you know this stretches on for a whole day and amanda has recruited my 
friends and family to like play roles in this storyline that she's written. I've also gone around the neighborhood and at various places left little clues for what he's supposed to do next and who he's supposed to meet and she, in she various got coffee various, shops. You know, I made fake um, money. That's so, right. Yeah. So at all of the places where he showed up, I had already paid for what he was supposed to order. And he was just supposed to use these like cyber bucks or something. <laughs> and 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 these people, to, to their credit, they were like down. They're like, <laughs> if a guy walks in with a, you know, ankle length red leather coat wearing cyber shades and you know, <laughs> holding a vibro blade. Yeah. I need you to accept his fake money and give him a gargle blaster drink. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, in the course of this, my my brother and his wife, who are um, they they're in a troupe called the Seattle Knights and they perform at Renaissance fairs doing jousting and sword fighting. Yeah. If anyone um, wants some professional knight action, yeah. I highly recommend the Seattle Knights. They um, but they were they were dressed up with, you know, cyber dreads and, and lightsabers. And they like hopped out of an alleyway at one point and they were battling some, you know, mercenary goons and they needed my help. And I got roped into this impromptu battle. <laughs> And then eventually we figured out that um, the sort of plot of this story was that there's this new drug flooding the market called Octo. And <laughs> I, had, I had to figure out who this drug kingpin was and take him down. But in order to, like, find out who he was, I had to, like, get some information from these Octo dealers that we spotted across the street who were, like, looking very obviously shady. <laughs> and know, with, future and, and futuristic. <laughs> And so like, the rest of Capitol Hill, Seattle is just going about their Saturday morning, <laughs> getting a bagel and, you know, a coffee. And, uh, the th you know, a handful of us are dressed in crazy future outfits. <laughs> so good. That's, that sounds, that was, oh, it was epic. That just sounds yeah. amazing. I mean, like, because I, um, you know, my wife and I got married in May and we had, I thought, a pretty, like, geeky wedding. We got married at the Center for Fiction in New York City. But then I was like, like reading up on you on your wedding, and I was like, oh my god, this is like this blows ours out of the water in terms of uh, yeah, the whole escape room aspect of it. Yeah. So back to our wedding, wedding. Um, Chris did this whole like futuristic proposal, and then we obviously had to just build upon that for the wedding. So we came up with the idea that sometime in the future. Um, we looked ourselves up in the Encyclopedia Galactica and accidentally broke our timeline and were sort of trapped in the future in the Encyclopedia Galactica. We stopped existing outside of it. And it caused all of our friends and family to be scattered throughout space and time. So the tech yeah. support person of the Encyclopedia Galactica was supposed to go back in time in this bubble outside of space and time. Um, and gather together all of our disparate friends and family in order to gather together enough love particles. Erosatons. <laughs> Erosatons. <laughs> and rematerialize us and... And restitch our timelines. Yeah, and fix our timelines. And so all of our guests were instructed to come dressed from different time periods. And so we had... And it was ancient Romans, awesome. and we had dinosaurs, and, and friends we had, covered in yeah. eyeballs, and yeah. we had two Tyrannosaurus Rexes. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't even human anymore. It was um, amazing. Plenty of weird cyberpunky type people. We had you know 1920s Prohibition era people, mm -hmm. you know. And the goal of the evening was it was kind of like a a one act 
one night only play that we put on for all of our friends and family that yeah. was kind of like a self-contained doctor who episode yeah there were special effects like um we had pre-recorded a video of ourselves in the future so that we were talking to ourselves during the ceremony <laughs> <laughs> um and instead of walking down the aisle we um we built these futuristic looking canisters that we called the rematerializers and our our friends and family uh, yeah. well our family had to come up and give their genetic yeah. material to <laughs> the materializer so that we could be reformed and then you know lights and fog and black lights and we poof, emerged from these canisters in a puff of smoke <laughs> looking and fabulous choking and cyber yeah. outfits that i made <laughs> It was so, so fun. So do you know if, it, like, is this, is, is your wedding, like, the, the geekiest wedding you know of? Or, like, do, are you part of, like, social circles where, where people do this sort of thing? Or is this just sort of something that you guys just kind of came up with on um, your own? So your brother's wedding was pretty geeky. My uh, but brother, again, yeah, his was... He's in the Renfair world, yeah. so it was Renfair. And I wasn't a part of the story yet. He had an awesome point. wedding. It was all, everyone was there in full regalia. I mean, I was wearing... Chain mail and and plate mail and <laughs> and you, you had know. shaved your beard to yeah. look very um, old. You know they walked under a sword arch and the coolest part was after the um, after the ceremony but before the reception, the uh, lead knight from the Seattle Knights, this the sort of patriarch of the knights, abducted my brother's bride <laughs> and said, you know, if you want to get her back, you're going to have to fight all of us. And he didn't know anything about this. It was all you know impromptu. And then he had to fight his way through six of the knights in order to reach his wife. And by the time he got to her, um, the Damien, the other guy, he stepped aside and said, actually, you don't have to fight me. You have to fight her. And then she drew her blade. <laughs> and, and, and at this point, my brother had a stroke of genius and he put he laid his blade down on the on the grass and he just knelt before her and, and said, begged her and, mercy. And, yeah, and begged her mercy. And then she headbutted him <laughs> drawing blood with the crown that she was wearing <laughs> this is real real blood yeah yeah, yeah. This is not was, part of the, that was yeah. not intentional no. okay. she, she didn't plan to draw blood but it's kind yeah. of perfectly layla that yeah. she drew blood on her wedding day <laughs> so um super fun wedding yeah i i don't know if we've are aware of a, a wedding a sci-fi wedding that's been as crazy as ours no but i keep but, yeah. saying to anybody who will listen that i will happily um we will happily as a team uh plan your wedding for you if you want to go deep fantasy or sci-fi we yeah. we commit is the <laughs> thing you want a commitment commit to yeah. a crazy yeah. wedding well you're, you're speaking to the right audience so maybe there's some <laughs> uh, some people out there who will take you up on that um, I'm curious, Amanda, do you just write these sort of LARP things or have you ever thought about writing like a science fiction novel or a short story or a screenplay or have you done anything like that? You know, I haven't. Chris has done more writing um, in the screenplay and short story arena. I'm currently working on, I mean, this is, it's super in the preliminary stages, but I'm writing a mystery novel that's based on the island where we live. Um, it's not sci-fi. It's more sort of quaint mystery mm. novel um but i think it would be super fun i mean chris has a really great idea for a um a movie actually that he would love to make called inner space um mm. which do you want to just give the the pitch for inner space it's really good sure um 
So, you know, the Fermi paradox, there's many potential solutions. Why don't we see aliens given the size of the universe and the statistics of the number of habitable planets, etc.? Um, you would think intelligent life would be everywhere. Um, and one of the solutions th that I happen to like to this paradox is that it is so expensive to travel across the vast distances of space uh, that intelligent civilizations inevitably turn inward and they explore increasingly complicated and nested um, virtual realities rather than attempt to build starships uh, and travel and explore the outer space uh, just because the speed of light limits the ability to do that in a reasonable way. And so the reason you don't see intelligent alien civilizations is because they have sort of burrowed inward and become virtual um, and artificial. So the premise of this is that, you know, climate change is ravaging the planet, various other catastrophes, and uh, a a crew of a sort of billionaire-led um, last-ditch mission to go colonize a, a distant planet, Wolf 1061C, um, takes That's off. the name of the planet. Yes. <laughs> Wolf um, 1061C. Yes. <laughs> it's, the, it's the third planet of the Wolf 1061 system. <laughs> Um, and they they leave with a you know colony of or with a collection of uh, you know fertilized ova um, and a crew of you know selected for their ability to survive on and terraform a planet in an interstellar sort yeah. of way yeah um, but when they arrive on the planet um, they failed to predict they sort of couldn't have predicted that a massive volcanic eruption is happening uh, and all the magma and ash and everything, all the ash in the air in particular, messes up their uh, landing thrusters and causes them to crash land on the planet. And almost everyone dies, including the billionaire founder of the thing that who was, you know, he steps foot on this planet for like one minute and then dies. And then they decide, oh, shit, we're, we need to like, what are we going to do? Like our cryopods are broken. We've only got, you know, we obviously don't have the materials we need to successfully build a civilization here anymore. We need plan B. And so they decide that they're going to, um, they spend a year building a smaller craft out of the wreckage of their first craft that they can fit two cryopods in, and they're going to send them back to earth. And they choose two of their, of their group to go back in the cryopods. Uh, one of them is a linguist, uh, or translator. And the other one, um, is a, is the cryo engineer. Yeah. And um, then a love story ensues over the course of uh, about 100 years. It takes them to travel back to Earth. One of the cryopods breaks. And so on this journey, they have to keep swapping out. They spend a year in the pod while the other one's out of the pod. Um, and because the organs atrophy and get messed up every time you refreeze, they got to minimize their they can't trade off every day, basically. Um, and. They write letters to each other and record videos, and they slowly fall in love over the course of this long journey as they grow super old. Um, and they arrive back at Earth, and their their organs are deteriorating and failing and so forth. And Earth isn't there, it seems like. But then they realize, actually, it is there. It's just been covered in uh, totally light-absorbent solar panels, and it appears black. A little AI. Although I think that's a little dated now because now they're making clear solar panels, but continue. Mm. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a little AI probe comes out and introduces them to, you know, Earth 2.0 and humanity is all digital now and welcomes them into to join to like upload, basically. 
Um, there's a lot more to it. I won't go into it beyond that. But this, this is a, yeah. you said this is a screenplay. You're this working on, I, or yeah, you're just I, thinking about. Th- I wrote a a screenplay treatment for this, and maybe okay. it's a novel. I've thought about it. I've, it would also be a good novel. A novel. Yeah. It's just I can also imagine it just being very beautiful. The problem is it would be one of the most very expensive, expensive. <laughs> screenplays. To I don't make. know yeah. though. Like part of it is just taking place in that damn ship that's going back and forth, that and that's actually cheap. pretty cheaply made. Yeah, it's more the inner space stuff that would be, and mm. what's happening on yeah. Wolf. Yeah, you, you know, you know, there was a movie called Inner Space from the eighties. I don't know if you know about that. No, I actually don't know about that. Well, damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what happened? Yeah, it's it's a it's a like sort of goofy comedy starring Dennis Quaid and Martin Short, where Dennis Quaid is a really um, cool, sophisticated uh, test pilot, got you know cocky test pilot guy, and he gets miniaturized a la Fantastic Voyage uh-huh. and uh, uh, implanted inside Martin Short, who's a like neurotic, uh, got it. you know, like nerdy guy, and so um, so um, Dennis Quaid eventually starts like he like hooks up his pod to Martin Short's. Uh, synapses and starts like instructing them on how to be more brave and uh, oh, cute. And okay, so it's like the magic school bus, but like you know, self help. <laughs> yeah, we actually we, we reviewed it um in the last past year or two. It, like I I feel I, I feel like the first like maybe two thirds is pretty good, and like the the last act goes on way too long and gets like mm. really really mm. ridiculous. But but Martin Short and um Dennis Quaid are like amazing, like have amazing like chemistry or like a a dynamic together so but you know you might need you might need to change the title yeah unfortunately blast (laughs) what could you name it you know Mm. actually rules about titles are interesting and complicated oh yeah you don't necessarily lots of stuff has the same title that's true you know yeah you could just be the new inner space yeah Move aside, Reboot. Martin Short. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, be, I, I do want to ask you, um, Christopher, about your novel "Deliver Us," which which yeah. I just read, which is like fantastic. I just oh, loved great. it. Thank you. Um, but do you want to tell people uh, kind of how did that uh, how did that book come about? Yeah, that's a book I co-wrote with my friend Gavin, and it is the premise is that uh, Amazon launches HQ two in Detroit. Uh, to beta test their drone delivery program, which um, amazingly still isn't happening yet. It seemed a few years ago that it was imminent. Yeah, you predicted the Trump thing, but yeah, you did not. This <laughs> book came out just before Trump, and I was like, would it be funny if Trump was president in this book? <laughs> 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 um, but it's, yeah, it's a book about the intersection of technology and social and uh, social and economic inequality. And it, it race politics is a huge part of it. Uh, like what happens when uh, technology enters into that equation? Is it a force for good? Is it a force for bad? The answer is it's complicated. Um, but the, the book kind of plays out as a, a battle for the soul of Detroit waged um, in the hearts and minds of Detroiters by uh, two women, one of whom is the PR uh, executive for Amazon, who is kind of tasked with selling the city of Detroit on the idea of Amazon, and another uh, who is a kind of guerrilla social media activist whose grandfather gets arrested after he shoots down a drone over his property. And uh, she wants Amazon the fuck out of there. And uh, they're kind of both battling back and forth uh, to try and claim the narrative. 
hilarity ensues. It, yeah, it's a, it's written in a, I would say, Coen Brothersy sort of tone, uh, Big Lebowski ish sort of tone. I'm, I wanted the the characters in the world to be slightly pitched up from reality. Um, so, and you know, the Jeff Bezos and his S team are characters in the book, and uh, they are, <laughs> you know, a little bit like. Um, the boardroom characters from like Hudsucker Proxy. <laughs> You've seen <laughs> or that. Or the Barbie movie now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a rapper named Goldman Stacks uh, who becomes an influential um, voice in the anti-Amazon campaign. And there's like, yeah. a, you know, his raps are in there and his music video. And there's yeah. a lot of fun stuff like that. Um, well, yeah, let me, a, yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, let me just to give people a sense of like what the tone of the book is like. I just wanted to read my two favorite or two of my favorite lines from the book. Oh, sure. Oh, cool. So, so when it says there were dust bunnies on the rafters below and small stains in the gray fabric of the walls, as if someone had wallpapered the place with the steam cleans upholstery of some college student's old Ford Taurus. <laughs> that was a <laughs> evocative image, and then. Uh, at the end of the campus, the Amazon Fulfillment Center, a big gray block lined with loading docks, rose out of the earth like a big gray block. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember writing that big gray block line. And there's something about the refusal of a beautiful metaphor <laughs> that perfectly encapsulates the industrial gray block. Mm. Like it doesn't deserve a metaphor. <laughs> it reminds you know? me of your friend's poem that ends with... Something, something. Oh, yeah. I had a, a buddy of mine um, sent me a poem 10 years ago. And he was we were he was trying to finesse the ending of this poem. And I was like, you know, this the, the last line isn't quite right. What it needs is, you know, this, 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 and then something, something. Like I could tell just metrically, musically mm -hmm. it needed that. Something, and something. And he had the genius insight to just put the words something, something as the final <laughs> words of the poem. <laughs> It worked great. Yeah, in that it was context. amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it was reminded me like it was reminded me a little bit of uh, in uh, Douglas Adams. He says, you know, it, it hung in the air in exactly the way that a brick doesn't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. A little bit of that kind of. <laughs> oh, I love Douglas Adams. God, let's talk about Douglas Adams. That got me through some rough times in prison. Mm. Um, Douglas Adams was my one of my go to. I had the the ultimate Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And that kept me company in a very difficult time when I was in a cell with five other people. And one of them was sort of unpredictably violent. And I spent a lot of time just sitting on my bunk, trying to be invisible with my head, like I had earplugs in my ears so I wouldn't have to listen to people screaming. And I would just needed some escape. And it was like the perfect escape for me because it was so light. It was so fun. Um, and it was everything I needed in that moment. Everything your reality wasn't? Everything my reality wasn't. Yeah. I didn't have a towel. That's That was my problem. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> well, well, you... 
Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, I'm a big Douglas Adams fan, given the title of this podcast. And it's interesting, mm-hmm. you know, my, my co-host, John, who I started the podcast with, or my, you know, he's our producer now, he was the co-host, but he, he, he had this story about when he was a kid, like he had a stepdad who was really not nice to him. And mm-hmm. basically, he was grounded, mm. like for an, like, an entire year or something where, you know, wow. he could go to school, but then otherwise, he was basically confined to his room. Wow. Um, and so he, uh, he just read like Hitchhiker's Guide, you know, that was like, like like you're saying, you know, that there's just something sort of like both um both cheerful but also kind of captures the there's something what's the word sort of like existential it's yes. sort of cheerfully existential mm. totally it's sort of perfect for that kind of you know getting perfect you through those kind for, of rough periods yeah for un uh, non consensual containment mm. <laughs> <laughs> non consensual containment that's quite the <laughs> Um, but I wanted to ask you too, Amanda, so in the acknowledgments for Deliver Us, it says that you were basically reading every draft of the book and critiquing it over over the shoulders of the authors and everything. So I was just wondering kind of what was your experience uh, on Deliver Us? Uh, you know? Oh, uh, well, I think it's so it's it's a two-way street because Chris is always looking over my shoulder with everything that I write as well. But yeah, so as he was writing it with Gavin, I was reading everything that they wrote and, you know, giving them insights into when I thought like it was literally just like this feels long, this feels overexplained or go into this more or this is super funny. This is not so funny. Um, I don't really understand this character's motivation. You know, all of those little factors that go into how you write a story. And the thing that Chris does not need help with is just producing content. Like Chris, <laughs> yeah. Chris will just. I'm, his, I'm very prolific. Yeah. He's very prolific. He writes very quickly. And sometimes I'm like, my impulse is to tell him to like pull back. Like you're giving away too much right now. Wait for it to come later. Or you're explaining it too much for the audience. Like trust that your audience is going to get it. Um, but he, like writing things like it rose out of the ground like a, like a gray block. <laughs> that's just him being a genius. That has I have nothing to do with that. The, I will say that, you know, with with all fiction, I'm a firm believer that empathy is the core of what makes fiction great, that unless you're, you know, writing totally autobiographical fiction, right, um, which had, you're verging on memoir at that point, the goal is to create characters and circumstances and worlds that are different from your own life. Um, and that requires you stepping into the mindset of another human being who is nothing like you. And actually a fun little tidbit about Deliver Us, um, I actually created D&D style character sheets for all the characters <laughs> in Deliver Us to try and fully imagine who they were. And I changed, you know, obviously they don't have a move silent skill you know <laughs> or pick lock pick lock yeah <laughs> well maybe <laughs> um but i i replaced those with sorts of social skills and things that people in our modern contemporary society would have so for instance for each character i knew what their flirtation score was and i knew what their navigate awkwardness score was mm-hmm. and i you know somewhat arbitrarily assigned to those things but i also you know what are the five items they have on their person at any given time mm-hmm. um I knew the answer to that question for every character. And so often in the writing of a scene, I, you know, you get to a point where what's going to happen next. Right. And, and one thing you learn in, in fiction writing when, after you've done it for a while is that 
uh, story should derive from character. I think that's a pretty, there are exceptions to this. There's exceptions to every rule, but I think it's a pretty strong rule that the things that happen in the plot need to feel organically derived from who the people are. And if they don't, then the characters don't come across as believable and they feel shoehorned into a plot that has been imposed on them by the authorial presence. And that's where I come in. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, imagining who they are, like what's going to happen next in this scene? Well, who is this person? Oh, that's right. They're terrible at navigating awkwardness. So now I kind of know how they're going to react to this. But even so, imagining the lives of these people who are very different from me. Some of them are are different races from me, different sexualities, different genders. Um, it's very useful to have readers who have real life experience with that. And so the two protagonists, the two main protagonists of this book were women. And so it was really, really useful to have a, a close, consistent female reader to just tell me Am I getting this woman right now? <laughs> you know, this, does she read believably as a woman to you? Mm-hmm. And that was a continual important note that I had to get. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Could I, could I ask you, so on, on the cover, it says, there's a couple of blurbs and it says, the legal issues alone, dot, dot, dot. They didn't even change Jeff Bezos's name seems foolhardy. And there are just too many inextric- inextricably baked in problems of a commercial nature. Are these things that publishers said or agents or something? <laughs> Those are or? things that actual editors said. Yes. At publishing houses yeah. <laughs> when when deciding not to publish the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even change Jeff Bezos's name. Yeah. I actually went over to Jeff Bezos's house and threw a copy over his fence. Like a freak. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he ever read it. <laughs> but if you hear this, Jeff, I think you come across well in the book. So... <laughs> I mean, there's actually, there's there's an epigraph in the book from, like, quote-unquote, Jeff Bezos, where he says, I know this looks like science fiction. It's not. Do you think of this as a science fiction book or a dystopian book? Um, I don't think of it as dystopian. It is very near-future sci-fi in the sense that, you know, things like drone delivery are exploding in the book, which aren't quite here yet. Um, That is a quote from Jeff Bezos. Um, I think he was Oh, it it really is? Yeah. Um, and not about this book, obviously, but he was, <laughs> oh. he was talking about some, I think he was talking about, um, drone delivery. Mm. Um, but, or, or it could have been some other Amazon product. Uh, but yeah, that's, I, I guess you could technically call it sci-fi. I think I would call it more of a social novel that has some sci-fi elements. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it and not dystopian. I don't think it's. I think it's actually quite hopeful right. for how technology. And I'm. I remain hopeful that technology can be a force for good in resolving a lot of our social problems. Well, um, and picking Detroit was also like super key to that book. Detroit is its own. It, it it's a it's a whole world that's mm. different than any other part of the United it's States. It's also the, a place that was, you know, the arsenal of democracy. It's like the Jetsons future is a future that is extrapolated from what Detroit used to be, right? Detroit was the the place of the greatest technological innovation in the U S for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's not that place now. No, <laughs> right? <laughs> not at all. Um, although some things are coming back, but I think the, the idea that, um, Things can fall either way off this tightrope we're on towards utopia or dystopia. And AI is a big part of this conversation as well. And 
it it can go either way and we need to be really careful to try and steer it so that it goes the way we want it to go and we don't just leave human beings high and dry in you know cities that they can't you know yeah occupy <laughs> it's um, and crazy as, you know i think there are real arguments to be made that even a, a purely selfish bezos style um capitalist takeover of <laughs> you know of earth until every last person is an amazon customer and <laughs> you know what i mean like that's part of the vision and there's no employees and they're all robots right like he's systematically replacing warehouse workers with with you know drones which of course you would it makes sense yeah. from a business perspective. actually let me i sorry i just got to jump yeah. in this is one of my other favorite parts of the book that i, I wanted to read <laughs> okay so it says in the bedroom of his Lake Washington mansion, Jeff Bezos dreamt of first contact with an alien race, moving lucidly through the treaty negotiations. Even his dreams were under his control, thanks to his LED lucid dream-inducing sleep mask, <laughs> securing whole new worlds to explore billions of new customers eager to join Amazon Prime Universe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but a rising tide lifts all boats argument, you know, like the... I think you can. I don't want to knock Bezos in that vision because you read you like you did a ton. I of did research. a ton of research. I read. I yeah. I read many books about. I read everything I could find about Bezos and and the workings of Amazon for a minor character in this book. I know. <laughs> I mean, and I also you know spent time in Detroit and met a lot of Detroiters and and did a lot of on the ground research that way too. So. No, I mean, that's one of the things I really liked about the book is I felt I was expecting it to be just kind of like Amazon is evil, but I felt like it really presented sort of a balanced view of some of the complexities of the, you know, of the pros and cons of everything. Totally. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that ties Amanda and I together is that we don't really believe in evil and we believe in humans who are complex and flawed and, and who are many things at once. And I think that about Bezos and about Amazon as well, which is an extrapolation honestly, of Bezos's mind, he's kind of built that company to be a magnifying lens uh, on his own impulses and, and wisdom. And he, the way he even trains people to like operate is meant to just be a sort of force multiplier of Bezos. If he could make <laughs> clones of himself to just run the company, I think he would. You know? <laughs> well, probably that'll happen some, yeah. sometime in the future. Um, but actually, that, that <laughs> <laughs> every that character actually, is Jeff Bezos. <laughs> actually, I would love for you to write a book where every character is Jeff Bezos. <laughs> it's in the warehouse. But I like what you said about how you guys, you know, you sort of try to see other people's points of view and everything, because that's one of the things I, one of the other reasons I wanted to talk to you is because, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in critical thinking and skepticism and everything. And so uh, it intrigues me that you it interviewed people like Michael Shermer and John mm -hmm. Ronson and Megan Phelps Roper. Um, and I, I forget which thing, it, which episode it was, but you talked about these tattoos, these matching tattoos that you have. And oh, I was wondering yeah. if you guys oh, yeah. could talk about that. Yeah, so this is our recipe, our four-part recipe for having a productive conversation. Yeah, this um, is on our on our left inside forearm. It's a set of four symbols. They sort of, you know, look like suits in a playing card, mm -hmm. like hearts, diamonds, etc. But instead of those symbols... Uh, we have step one. Uh, we can alternate if you want. Sure. So step one is a Venn diagram. 
um, representing the need to find common ground. So before you enter into a conversation with somebody, especially when you're going to be disagreeing on a topic, the first thing you should do is try to find common ground, find where you agree, um, even if it's you know, we both don't want to be having this conversation, but ideally you would have something more in common. And I think that you'd be surprised, even in the most adversarial of relationships, how much you might have in common with your adversary. Step two. Step two is a knight's helmet, which represents steel manning, which is the opposite of straw manning. So instead of, you know, picking apart the weakest version of your opponent's position, you need to address the strongest version of their position uh, such that the the rubric we always go by is such that the other person would say after you summarize their position, wow, that's exactly what I believe. Thank you for articulating it so well. I wish I'd thought of, of saying it that way. Right. right? That's the goal. Uh, step number three is a heart, and that is for having compassion um, you have compassion for how your adversary or your conversation partner might have arrived at their conclusions, even if you don't ag- agree with them. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. And uh, the, the last symbol is the delta symbol, which represents change in mathematics, physics. And that is because you need to be willing to change. If you enter into a, a difficult conversation, unwilling to change your own beliefs, you really shouldn't expect whoever you're talking to to be willing to change theirs either. And it might be the case that you're the one who's wrong. You have to accept that possibility. So, you know, that that set of steps is a reminder to ourselves. And it, it comes up, honestly, all in our marriage all yeah. the time, even just, you know, like find common ground. Okay. We're disagreeing about some childcare. What are we going to do with our with our infant son and do we sleep train him this way or that way? This is very pertinent because we are in the middle of that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, well, common ground, we both really value and care about our son, right? That's let's just reestablish that fact. We have the same goal here, which is to love and support our son, you know? Um, Okay. You think we should do sleep training this way. I think we should do it that way. Like, let me truly grapple with all the best arguments for your position. And you know? vice versa. Yeah, right. And it, and have compassion not only for how they may have arrived or what's in, what is informing their perspective. But, but also your own, yeah. yeah. And per- compassion for yourself, too. Because mm-hmm. it sucks to be wrong, you know? It sucks so hard. It's really hard it to be wrong. It also sucks to be in an argument with someone that you care about. Mm-hmm. Like, that sucks. So, you know, this has been useful to us in in our jobs, um, when we, whenever we interview people on labyrinths, we're not always talking to people we agree with, and we're often having difficult and complicated conversations. Um, you know, not with Brent Spiner or LeVar Burton. Those happen to be <laughs> those pretty light pretty and easy fun. breezy, yeah. You know, but we've talked to people um, who who have political viewpoints or um, who represent um, ideologies that don't align with our own. And especially in those kinds of conversations, this is really useful. Yeah. And it's uh, it's sort of building upon something that I came away with just from prison. Like I lived alongside people who had committed heinous crimes. Like I lived one of my cellmates for a while there was someone who had murdered her own kid. So it's like if I can live with people who murdered their own kids, then I can talk to anyone, (laughs) you know. 
Yeah. So, so was this sort of skepticism kind of, you know, um, what would you call it? Sort of, uh, uh, oh God, there's a, a particular phrase I'm, I'm struggling to come up with here. Uh, epistemic humility, this sort of epistemic mm. humility approach. Is this something that you were both interested for a long time or did you influence each other? Or was there a particular like uh, progression of how you got interested in, in these sorts of ideas? I mean, these sorts of ideas I became interested in when I was going through all the insanity in Italy because I intuitively understood that everyone who was, you know, putting me through this horrific experience was not an, necessarily an evil person, that there were a lot of people out there who felt like they were justified in calling me a monster or justified in putting me in prison, even though they were wrong. And I became interested in that problem of how do you talk to or um, or deal with people who are hurting either you or someone else, but believe that they are justified in doing so. Um, and how how do you have difficult conversations when somebody has written off your humanity? That's just like a problem that I've had in my life that I've had to figure out what to do with. I came at that much more philosophically. I, I studied philosophy of mind a lot. I'm very well read on that subject. And I've um, thought a lot about nature of consciousness and knowledge and things like that. So, you know, going to like Thomas Kuhn's justified true belief, you know, how do you really know that you know something and what does it mean to know something? And it's a very... <laughs> abstract philosophical entry point to the questions that Amanda faced on a, a very, very pragmatic yeah, way <laughs> and visceral way. Yeah. Um, but I think we both ended up arriving at epistemic humility and skepticism on our other wrist, incidentally, is another tattoo we both have, which is the resistor symbol, um, which for us represents um, being a, mindful of epistemic what, humility. Yeah, honestly, yeah, yeah. Like being mindful of what information we let in to influence our thinking, what we what be mindful of what we let out into the world. Yeah. We don't want to um, just be an easy conduit for information without vetting it. Yeah. Uh, or opinion or idea, et cetera. So what comes in, we don't just want to be spitting back out. And that's our our skepticism filter, basically. Uh, apply a skeptic uh, skeptical mindset. And we're both atheists. I think we arrived at those conclusions also. Um, mm -hmm. in different ways, but we've now, we're now sort of aligned in that space and we're both deeply interested in how the mind works. Mm -hmm. And again, like I, from my interest in consciousness and cognitive science, I wound up being really curious about cognitive bias and Amanda, uh, <laughs> you know, hmm. yeah, as they, it's as a victim just, of, it's just the, very relevant yeah, to my life. Cognitive <laughs> bias. We did one episode of Labyrinths with um, this guy, ETL Drawer, who is one of the world's leading experts on cognitive bias, as it, uh, especially as it affects forensic science, which is super interesting. Because a lot of people think things like fingerprinting is just a, a pretty cut and dry science. A print either matches or it doesn't. But in fact, it's much more of an art. Um, as is DNA comparison and analysis, another another thing people tend to think of as just a cut and dry science. And um, Drawer has shown through some very clever study designs that these people are extremely 
subject to the various cognitive biases that afflict us all, such that if they're told extraneous information like that a suspect confessed, they will often change their their scientific uh, their opinion, yeah, and say, "Oh, well, actually, this print does match," um, when before they thought it didn't. And that's very troubling <laughs> because you would hope that that sort of information does not affect a analyst's opinion of whether or not a blood splatter pa- pattern matches uh, or is consistent with, you know, the scenario presented. Yeah, I have I have his name on my list of episodes to talk about, but I, I wasn't sure I would be able to pronounce it correctly. So I just, just sort of skipped over it when I was reading the. <laughs> The names there. But no, I would definitely recommend to everyone listen to that episode because it was, yeah, it was really disconcerting, the stuff he was saying about the uh, imperfectness of forensic science or the uh, mm-hmm. you know, the biases that can affect it. And it's not that the, that the forensic scientists are notably, you know, biased. It's that they're just human and we're yeah, all biased. We're all biased by things and like that. And when, when you have a job like determining whether or not someone is a murderer, if you're a prosecutor or a judge or a forensic scientist, I think the burden to counteract your own cognitive biases is higher. And the expectation that the people who fulfill those roles need to be working a lot harder to pay attention to and notice their biases. And that's something that had they have resisted <laughs> acknowledging yeah. uh, to this day. All right, so we're we're pretty much out of time. I guess maybe just to wrap things up, um, I'll just ask you if you have any upcoming projects you want to talk about. So, so like Chris, in some article I read, it said that you're working on a nonfiction book about evolution, the future, and psychedelics. Is that uh, is that still going on? Or? I am still working on that book slowly. Yeah, it's um, it is a I. <laughs> It's about um, insights I've gained from both psychedelics and a lot of time spent meditating um, about how uh, to live in the present moment, but also about how evolution has basically built us to do anything but that (laughs) Um, because survival is correlated not just with um, having a good predictive model of of the world around you, but the the further you can, the further an organism can predict what's next, basically, the higher its chances of survival. And so we are all driven to be little prediction machines and to be continually living five seconds, five minutes, 10 minutes from now. And I wanted to sort of explore that story um, as it applies to all life and what it means to be an entity that is kind of living in the future perpetually. Um, And of course, the entities that are coming after us, like artificial intelligence, they will be living and operating on timescales that dwarf our own. And, you know, what does it mean to be planning for a future 10,000 or 100,000 years from now? How does that affect the decisions you make? I mean, what does it mean for a little proto-flagellum, you know, a little uh, cyanobacteria or something to anticipate its own future? Because there is a way of talking about that as well that is coherent um, on on another very different timescale. So, yeah, I'm plugging away at that slowly. Yeah, and it sounds really cool. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it whenever whenever it's ready. Um, And then, Amanda, is there any any upcoming projects that you want to mention? I do have upcoming projects, but I don't know if I'm allowed to mention them. Stay tuned for early next year, I guess. Yeah, early next year, there'll be some big things happening. Um, and I think what you can say is the waking up thing just came out. Oh, yeah, recently. that's right. Um, just, yeah, very recently, I uh, wrote and um, delivered this series of meditative talks on the subject of resilience for um, Sam Harris's Waking Up app. 
uh, which you can find uh, in the life section if you're a subscriber. And it's our favorite meditation app. So I recommend it if you don't already meditate. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Also, I just listened to your interview with Sam Harris, which I thought was really good. So if people haven't uh, listened to that, um, they should go check that out as well. Yeah. So that's um, all right, got. do you have... <laughs> okay, cool. So um, do you have any other final thoughts or anything or uh, any final final words? I'm just very grateful for how deep cut you went yeah. <laughs> with us. That was super fun. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, again, we'll uh we'll uh do your we'll plan your wedding for you. It's it's not just crazy, <laughs> it is moving as well. We have we did very good vows. They were very fun. Yes. We made everyone yeah. cry. Yeah, I won't say I'm sorry. I got. I won't say I'm sorry. I got married already. But uh, if I had known that you guys were available, (laughs) you got to have heart. It's not enough to have cool sci-fi ideas. You You got to have heart. Got to have heart. Yeah. Um, All right. Cool. So uh, we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Amanda Knox and Christopher Robinson. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Amanda Knox and Christopher Robinson for joining us on the show. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.